Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trukauger, and I'm a communicator here at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Pavel Baev is a research professor at Prio. His work focuses on Russian military reform, energy interests in Russia's foreign and security policy, and Russia's relations with Europe and NATO. Pavel is originally from Russia, but has worked at Prio since 1992. Because of both his personal and professional relationship to the country, I asked him to talk with me about the recent poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Navalny is a Russian politician who has been involved with protests and anti-corruption investigations. He's been jailed several times and is generally recognized as a political threat to Putin. On August 20th, on a flight from Siberia to Moscow, Navalny suddenly became sick. The plane made an emergency landing, and he was subsequently evacuated to Germany. Since then, it has been confirmed that he was poisoned with Novichok, a nerve agent that was developed in Russia and has been used before for similar assassination attempts. As of recording this, on September 9th, Navalny is still in Germany and no longer in a coma. Thank you for joining me, Pavel. I really appreciate you being here. And today we're recording, it is September 7th, so things could change very quickly by the time this podcast episode comes out, but we're going to talk about poisonings and Russia. So can you give us a little bit of a, a summary of why this is so relevant right now in the news, really quick? Certainly, it's not a topic I find a lot of joy uh, taking, and it's not really a theme I feel comfortable discussing, it. not because it's just outside my expertise but because it's plain dreadful what is happening inside Russia, uh, and not only the, the fact itself, and not only the uh, new level of d- domestic violence against opponents, but also what sort of response and reaction there is, both uh, in the polity, so to say, and among the population, and what sort of atmosphere um, f- shapes up uh, around that atmosphere, which rather recently appeared to be uh, far more cheerful, far more uh, joyful, I would even say, because the long-going protests in uh, Khabarovsk were really something very new and something which gave a lot of hope to uh, the protests are still ongoing for that matter. That's why I'm using pres- present tense uh, to many people, that this is possible, that people can be mobilized, that they come on, not to just to come on the street for, for a weekend, but they can continue their protests, they can push their case forward, they are not disappointed in not uh, achieving their goal immediately. There is sustainability to that. And Navalny was very much a part of that. Mm-hmm. He was trying to campaign in Siberia to tap into this discontent to really to uh, make from a particular case in Khabarovsk something larger. Yeah, so in the midst of all of this kind of hope and possibility for change, now we suddenly have this horrible event of Navalny being poisoned. And now it's been confirmed that he was poisoned with Novichok, which is a known uh, nerve agent used by um, the Russian government. Yes, the Russian special services. And uh, there is a track record of how exactly it was produced, invented. Uh, it's not uh, an entirely new substance, but at the, at the same time, it's not something very old. It's, it's still uh, late Soviet years we're talking about when this chemical weapons was invented and sophisticated and uh, weaponized. So the uh, track record is very convincing uh, where it is. Uh, where it is poisoning, there are still people involved uh, in uh, in the research on, on that, in uh, both as a chemical substance and as a weapon. Uh, 
so there are hardly any any doubt and uh, you know this is one of the stories where uh, each particular element can be probably explained away somehow there are always space for conspiracy <laughs> theories but taken together you just can see there is no other explanation it was a pre-planned highly san uh, hi sanctioned on the highest level operation of the special services which didn't quite achieve its goal for all sort of reasons operations of this sort uh, very often go wrong for these services because the level of qualification of this uh, executioner so to say isn't particularly great <laughs> well yeah i mean clearly since they since they failed but what is the what is the benefit of them doing it this way i mean obviously there are so many ways that you can kill someone but there is a long history of this kind of poisoning being used by the by the russian um uh intelligence so what is the benefit is this some kind of sort of psychological terror in a way to the people or what is the benefit for them i think in this particular case uh, they tried uh, really to invent a perfect cover-up. It happens before the flight, it's a long flight, uh, uh, and the uh, reaction of the, of the target, so to say, should have been uh, going into long sleep, uh, going into coma in the plane. When it arrives to Moscow, it's too late. Right. Nobody knows what's the reason because the doctors cannot identify uh, as they were unable to identify a thing in Omsk. So in this regard, everything is perfectly uh, covered up. And it didn't work that way, particularly because the pilot saw that something is happening on the plane and made, made an emergency landing. And the people where he landed in Omsk, uh, the, uh, the doctors, immediately saw that something is wrong here and they supplied some sort of antidote. Not a perfect one, but it's still something the uh, first thing they thought about. And that's where the whole operation went, uh, was messed up, went wrong, right. so to say. And uh, so in this sense, the, the method, the organization, the target, the timing, you see how it all fits up into this uh, special operation which leaves no space for other explanation. And that's why such a furious campaign in Russian propaganda about denying everything. It's not the first time the denials are used, the denials about Boeing uh, shooting down, the denials about the previous poisoning of Skripal in the UK. But this time, the intensity of this denial, so the, the, uh, the level of hysteria around it is something unprecedented, which probably tells you that uh, some people are really scared. So uh, w what kind of uh, reactions have there been in the media in Russia? Obviously, you're saying they're denials, but um, how are they framing it? And then also, how are people reacting uh, to that? It's rather hard to say how people are reacting. I can only say that in social media, right. at least, there is a lot of uh, understanding what really happened. Uh, the, uh, the whole kind of denial campaign is, is essentially state-run TV and most of the official media. Uh, in in uh, the newspapers, which are moderately independent, there are all sort of uh, elliptical sort of say, references that it's not exactly what uh, the officials say. In social media, which remains beyond control. Uh, the idea that Russia wants to control the internet is still an idea. After all the years of discussing the method, internet remains beyond <laughs> control in Russia. It's not China in this regard. Yeah. 
uh, and there there is an explosion of, under, kind of uh, posts about what is really happening, what it means, um, but it's also a lot of shock. This this sort of thing happened. What it means, uh, you know, having committed that sort of crime, what next? You can we expect from the authorities? What uh, now with this on their hands? on their reputation, on their, um, on their track record, what, what, who, who might be the next one, what next measures are they going to take. And in this sense, uh, the crisis uh, with Navalny um, in Moscow develops somewhat, not just in parallel, but along a sim similar trajectory with the crisis in Belarus. We also see the authorities respond this way, and now the, kind of the quality of that response compels them to take a next step, to make a next step, and the, each next step is worse, is graver mistakes, it's worse crime, and there is no way out of that. So you're kind of getting into this already, but what are the the um, regional implications for this? And obviously the um, allies and enemies of Russia, is this different from other cases when there's been um, a political assassination? Uh, because Germany has obviously taken a, a quite a strong um, front role in helping Navalny, is this going to change ge geopolitical relations because of this, this one incident? It is a very serious challenge uh, to, to the whole West, I would say, to Russia's European partners in particular. Uh, and Germany is really facing this challenge because in Germany was a lot of uh, mixed feelings about how to deal with Putin's Russia. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of firsthairs who were trying to say that, kind of, yes, it's not particularly a nice uh, neighbor, but we need to deal with Russia as it is. We need to try to understand Putin's mo uh, motives and try to find a modus operandi which uh, allows for dialogue, which allows for interaction, for trade in particular. And now suddenly these voices in Germany are generally silenced and Angela, uh, Angela Merkel, probably despite her own uh, best preferences, is forced to take a very strong stance. And to what degree other European countries are, uh, want to follow, it's a question to each, uh, each country. Macron was very interested in having his own dialogue with Russia and now suddenly he's fe feeling it's going nowhere. Uh, you know, Norway, taking a, uh, a seat in the UN Security Council, um, had a lot of ideas how to interact with Russia, with Russia in various situations in the Middle East, after all. And now you are interacting with a criminal regime. Mm. And there is no hiding from that. And what right. sort of tone to take and how to uh, construct this dialogue. It is, there are difficult questions. I am uh, not prepared to give advices to everybody. No, and it seems like this really could could shift, uh, shift Russia's role in a lot of these political uh, conversations. And you mentioned Norway. So I just wanted, I mean, since we're in Norway, we should probably zero in on that a little bit. Um, how has Norway dealt with these incidents in, in the past when there have been these pretty clear examples of, of what uh, the Russian government is capable of? How has Norway reacted? How have they stayed neutral or not? <laughs> There were different reactions, again, different incidents. Uh, for that matter, for Norway, for the Norwegian parliament, it was a big, big question mark whether to respond uh, to uh, the initiatives from several European states in the United States with so-called Magnitsky Act. Magnitsky is a lawyer who was murdered in a Russian jail, probably one of the first victims uh, of this kind whether to uh, take sanctions along uh, along these lines. And each crime adds 
rises to the pressure to do something about that. And we, we cannot ignore. And now certainly for Norway there is an additional consideration because Jan Stoltenberg is NATO Secretary General. And he is compelled to take a very strong stance because besides everything else, it's the use of chemical weapons. Yeah. And so yeah. NATO has to take a stance and he, uh, he delivered on that. And for Norway trying to somehow put a distance between NATO and itself, between Jens Stoltenberg, who is a Norwegian politician, and Norwegian polity is very difficult. So I think Norway will be, will be forced to take a, a stance despite its desire to have good neighborly relations with Russia. Because unlike many other European states, it is Russia's neighbor. And not a small border in the north, but the huge big, uh, big Arctic where there is a lot of need to cooperate, which becomes increasingly difficult. I think things in the Security Council will probably be pretty awkward uh, over the next few months. Yes, they, they certainly are. There are several issues coming up in the Security Council related to Iran uh, in particular. Uh, where tensions were uh, going high and not to mention we barely found compromise, for instance, on the issue of uh, transborder humanitarian aid to Syria. It was more and more difficult to deal with Russia, not only on substance, because also, because also on style. The style of Russian diplomacy is becoming increasingly harsh and rude. And some, where Rus some Russian diplomats before um, tried to demonstrate a certain kind of style of diplomacy. Now I think they take pride of having none. And there is a lot of uh, posturing and false pretenses. Uh, so in this style, it's rather difficult to cooperate in many ways, but very un-Norwegian, so to say, zeroing back <laughs> to where we are. Well, thank you so much, Pavel. Is there anything you want to add in closing? I don't know, uh, but I think I take it for some reasons uh, very personally. I feel very bad about what's happening, uh, deterioration of the regime, degradation of the society. Uh, and I think it, it hurts very much, like it did for that matter in the year 15, when Boris Nemtsov was murdered. Mm. And I saw him in Oslo not that long time before that happened. Uh, and now this, and I feel that as Nimtsov's murder was in many ways linked to the aggression against Ukraine, um, this crime, and in so many ways it happened with the crisis in, the, in Belarus, about which I also have very good feelings. Thank you, Pavel. My, my, my non-pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Music by Martin Rennemull.